0: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Rerooted Podcast here on Ramdas's Be Here Now Network. I'm Francesca Maxime, and recording today, May 7th, uh, 2020, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, actually from my mother's house, my, my the, the house I grew up in, the home I grew up in. Um, and it is situated on Nipmuc land uh, and territory, which is uh, something that I'm becoming more appreciative of as I knew uh, the Nipmucks more as a uh, team growing up that we would, uh, you know, play and compete with, with soccer, uh, as many things are named for Indigenous peoples here <clears throat> and around the country and around the world for that matter. And yet we don't really know the origin and we don't really know the history. Um, we're going to talk about history today, uh, not only of indigenous people, um, but uh, about uh, the history of psychoanalysis. And uh, today I have a very special guest, uh, the, fir- the person who is the author of uh, A People's History of Psychoanalysis, Dr. Daniel gazzambide and I would like to offer an introduction to him. Uh, first, to just say hello. His name is uh, Dr. Daniel gastambide He's an assistant professor of clinical psychology at the New School for Social Research. He's the director of the Culture and Mental Health Lab. He is a scholar and researcher on issues related to race, culture, psychotherapy, trauma, psychoanalysis, and liberation psychology. He is the author of the book, A People's History of Psychoanalysis, as I said, From Freud to Liberation Psychology, out in 2019 through Lexington Books. He's also a practitioner in private practice and a candidate at the NYU Postdoctoral Program in Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you so much for joining us today on Rerooted.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's, um, it's really a pleasure. And I think we're all sort of, you know, trying to settle in, at least I know I am, to where am I situated in space and time and who am I and what am I? And as part of that, um, I just want to do a little social location uh, introduction. Also, my preferred pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, I am Haitian, Dominican, Italian and American. Uh, I'm a cishet woman of um, middle age, as it was my birthday yesterday, (laughs) and I'm realizing that I'm creeping up there, and also the internal internal ageism that I have around that at a certain level, Uh, internalized, meaning you know, in, in this sort of frame of of uh, better or worse, youth is great and, you know, mm-hmm. getting older is not. And and then, you know, we get into these spiritual and mindfulness realms where, you know, age is irrelevant and time is just a concept and things like that. But, you know, I notice what's sagging and what isn't. <laughs> 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 so um, that's
1: good to have some humor.
0: Yeah, right. No, definitely, definitely. But that being said, uh, you know, I just wanted to to sort of name all of those things. And also, coming from a Catholic history, but now practicing more mindfulness and Buddhism, and also, um, first language is English, and also, uh, you know, coming from a certain education and socioeconomic class. And I think, you know, I'm trying to get more in the habit of, of noticing these things and naming these things to invite all people, especially people with light and white skin privilege or light passing privilege, to sort of be able to recognize where they are and who and what they are and what constitutes constitutes their social identity, whether it's implicit or explicit to them, and then kind of get more familiar with what that means. So um, I would invite you to do the same thing if you want, even though I just read your bio, but you don't have to. I'm just curious to see how you would self, you know, your self-affirming pronouns and all those things.
1: Well, firstly, Paseca, uh, thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show. I, I couldn't help but notice as a betting psychoanalyst, you're starting off with your mom, which I will. I will decline analysis at this time. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to notice it mindfully. Oh, that later. It's, it's
0: there. It's all there.
1: It's all there. That's right. Um, as, for, as for myself, let's see. So I'm a um, uh, able-bodied, cis, heterosexual, ruggedly handsome, light-skinned Puerto <laughs> Rican man yeah. from San Juan, Puerto Rico, currently living in the People's Republic of Harlem in New York City. Uh, mm-hmm. My preferred pronouns are he, him, and él, uh, my primary language or first language is Spanish. Um, I, you know, I was, let me think, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico in the metropolitan area, came over when I was about 18 or so for college. The last name, Gastambide, is originally from the Basque region of Spain, but it's been in Puerto Rico for so long, hundreds of years, that Many islanders often recognize my Puerto Ricanness just the moment they hear the name and it becomes a ritual. They come up to me and they go, ¿Tú, eres? ¿Tú eres <laughs> are you, Are you Puerto Rican? Are you Puerto right. um, which becomes a, a fun way of almost like, I don't know, putting up a signal, um, like a Rican signal that other people can recognize and connect to.
0: And how does that land on you? How do you feel? Do you feel connected? Do you feel othered? Do you feel included? How how is that for you when people bring you in there and sort of claim you and name you?
1: It feels yeah, it definitely feels very connected. Like I remember I was doing like a human resources training at a hospital and prep for some research I was gonna be a part of. And everybody had to go around and introduce themselves. And after the training, I see at the other side of the room this this one guy light skin, freckled face, flaming, ginger hair. And he, uh, I see him looking at me and I'm like, oh, what's going on? Do I know this person? And then they come up to me and they say, you know, so—like, <laughs> do you know so-and-so? I right. went to high school with this person and it turned out they went to high school with one of my cousins. Um, so wow. it's, it's a really fun way of just kind of connecting with people back from the island who are here in the diaspora. Um, so it feels very fun. You know, the the flip side of it is, you know, being on the phone with like a telemarketer or representative and have to go, uh yeah, so it's G-A-Z-T-A-M-B-I-D-E, G is in goat, A is an apple, Z is in zebra, T is in Tom, A as an apple, M is in Mary, B is in boy, I as an eagle, D is in dog, E is in Echo. And doing that verbatim over and over again, you know.
0: Yeah, it's a mouthful. Mine is kind of a mouthful too, but, um, but I appreciate it. I always say E for email, but echo is, echo is good also. Um, And, and has there ever been a time or times when you feel as though you've been um, claimed erroneously or, or you've been misclaimed for lack of a better way of saying it, meaning that as a, yeah, what's that experience like for you? How, how, like, can you give us an example of that and and how that went down?
1: I mean, that's the story of my life. I mean, you don't, (laughs) you don't, (laughs) <laughs> you know, when 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 two brown parents make a light-skinned baby, questions start to come up, right? So I remember um, growing up as a kid, like my grandfather, before I was born, he recorded all these TV shows in the local channels in Spanish, and then he would find their, like the same show, but in English on cable TV. And so I got exposed to, um, you know, speaking English at an early age but because many of those shows in Spanish were translated in Mexico, they had a Mexican accent. So mm. up until about the age of five or six, I had a Mexican accent in Spanish. Wow. And so people would ask my mother, like, oh, is he, is he like from a previous, like a child from a previous marriage? <laughs> is this your Mexican love child? And, <laughs> and then when I, got, when I got older, then it sort of shifted to, you know, people looking at my dad, who's what we would call quemaito, like he's kind of uh which means like sunburned like he's brown essentially and when people would compare me to him similar questions like is he adopted is he you mm. know from your wife's previous marriage so the question of my body and what it meant in puerto rico am i american am i some sort of european person um and then in the states depending on you know, lighting, the alignment of the stars. I am either a very weird looking white person or a drug dealer. No in between. <laughs> no, no in between. So I either get, you know, all of the you know great uh, Puerto Rican stereotypes or I get what would you even call it miscultured or misraced in a way, uh, depending mm. on somebody's projection. So my light skin winds up being a kind of transparent Rorschach for different people's patient or otherwise, uh, racial and cultural anxieties.
0: Hmm. Wow. That is so beautifully said in a way that can lead us right into the psychoanalytic piece of all of this, a projection sort of Rorschach for other people's anxieties, which also cuts Right to the root of um, a lot of what the podcasts on this network, the Be Here Now network, are about, which is the Buddhist teachings, or mindfulness teachings, or clear seeing, or you know Mm. that kind of thing. Meaning, like, what is occluding, and like, what are we making up? And so, anyway, um, you know, what's the narrative that we're making up about the actual presencing that's here? So, um, back to you and about that. Tell me about. Um, what you mean by that further and then speak maybe more specifically about the book and why you wrote it and and how you, you know, dug into that. I'll I'll ask you more questions about it specifically, but this idea of projecting identity onto you based on the Mm. other person's position or social location, um, which is part of the reason why I did that exercise is to bring awareness into one's own social location. So you then- can see a little bit anyway, as to what you might be making up or bringing into someone else's experience that isn't actually accurate.
1: The, the way that I would best summarize the idea, along with one of the major theses of the book, is that identity, identity fundamentally has to do with a kind of wounding. We, we are not necessarily born having a sense of who or what we are. But we're always discovering who and what we are as it is mirrored or reflected in the other. And sometimes Mm. that mirror is a cracked mirror. Sometimes that mirror is reflecting a cracked, split, and broken nature within ourselves. So what happens when identity is a function of this kind of wounding? What happens when these wounds become weaponized against uh, not just ourselves, but also other people? that identity is constructed out of different ruptures that occur both interpersonally and intimately, certainly in our family of origin, but also more broadly in terms of signifiers of race, class, sexuality, and gender, and how the constructions of these identities serve a political purpose to maintain systems of control and domination. Um, Mm. How do you take somebody's hurt, which is, real and it has its own narrative and its own history and you communicate to that person that the source of that hurt that pain is somebody else and then mm. that somebody else becomes hurt and wounded in turn and then they are struck with an identity right mm. so to, to give a very like you know down to earth example emerging you know as we were talking earlier in my own experience um Growing up in Puerto Rico, there, there was barely any reflection as a child about being Puerto Rican. One just was. But then in becoming older and get, getting more aware of the colonial situation that we live in and the different types of trauma that we have suffered for the past 500 years, let alone my own lifetime, and then coming stateside and seeing Puerto rican associated with the abject, with the negative, with racial otherness not only made me very aware of my Puerto Ricanness, but very aware of my Puerto Ricanness as a side of wounding. And so then what happens when you're wounded by something, but then you also become emotionally invested and attached to that wound itself. My Puerto Rican identity is extremely important to me and I can't imagine my location without it. Also true, so much of my Puerto Rican identity as many other people's racial, cultural, Etc., identities also marked by trauma. Mm-hmm. So, what happens when you are caught in that dialectic between something that's formed out of trauma and how that trauma can be used for political purposes?
0: Yeah, beautifully said. And so um, spanning from the micro location within you as one individual person and within the um, sort of larger piece of how you exist in relationship to and with cultures and societies here in the u s and in Puerto Rico, but also beyond that structurally, um, how the system has shaped this for the last uh, several centuries and and how we carry that um, either as a locus of wounding of transference of projection of whatever it is that it is um, of trauma um, and 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 how that shapes. Um, yeah, what we're thinking and, what, and how we're feeling and, and what we're receiving um, and, and then how we kind of tend to operate. And then I would, I would guess, I would think that the whole purpose of psychoanalysis or of trauma work or of, you know, in some cases, mindfulness work or, you know, these are sort of related, but in different, done in different ways is to explore that and start to get curious about it and, and start to interrogate that and unpack that a little bit to see like what really is mine and, and what isn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The case Um, to kind of ground where this idea sort of emerges. um, The book on the one hand is a historical account of psychoanalysis from a perspective grounded in social justice and formed in large part by liberation theology and psychology. And it's out of examining that history that I came to a very consistent set of ideas that evolved from Freud through those first and second generation of psychoanalysts, through um, post-colonial theorists, like Franz Fanon and Paulo Freire, all the way down to the founder of liberation psychology, Ignacio Martin Baró. Um, uh, to say a little, little bit about my journey to writing this book, mm. so to make a very long story short, I grew up in a context where psychoanalysis was very, uh, for lack of a better word, normal. Um, We talked about it in my family. It was part of my circle growing up, especially in my church where, you know, mental health was very prevalent. But when I came to the States for college and me having, you know, this whole dream like, oh, I'm going to become a psychologist, going to be a psychoanalyst. Then I discover this narrative about Freud that, you know, Freud and psychoanalysis, as Edward Said once said, really belongs in the dustbin of history. It's racist, classic, sexist, homophobic. There's, there's no good in it. Mm-hmm. And the best you can hope for is, you know, a more contemporary relational form of psychoanalytic thinking that you got to go, you know, get, let go of the, the bad, which is old and in the past and stay with what's contemporary. Um, and then digging deeper into those contemporary forms of psychoanalysis, I noticed some parallels between, for example, the work of feminist psychoanalyst Jessica Benjamin and the work of Paulo Freire. On the importance of relationships in liberation of vulnerability and intersubjectivity. And I thought, oh, well, maybe here I can have an integration of two things that I love psychoanalysis and liberation psychology. um, And maybe I can integrate them as if they're two separate things. Um, Then I came across a book called um, Freud's Free Clinic Psychoanalysis and Social Justice by Elizabeth Danto that told a very different history, a very different story about Freud, um, that Freud and the first generation of analysts were Jewish people living in a world that saw them as racial others, that all of them were Marxists, social democrats, socialists, and communists, and that they had these very progressive ideals. And I thought, oh, well, here's a history that I didn't really know about. Let me dig into that. Like, what, what's that about exactly? And the more I dug into that history, the more I had to rethink how I saw Freud again and discover, wait a minute, Freud on the one hand does say some very problematic, racist, homophobic, et cetera, things. And he also says these surprisingly, um, not just progressive, but very visionary things about the way that society functions. And it was in tracing those ideas that I then realized, oh, Not only are these ideas transmitted over time to other thinkers that drew heavily on psychoanalysis, but there were specific relationships, specific people that connected Freud to Franz Fanon, to Paulo Freire, and ultimately Ignacio Martín Baró. That there's a genealogy that ties these ideas and these people together that's centered around this dynamic of how is it that people who are oppressed who are marginalized and persecuted wounded and traumatized as i mentioned earlier how do they come to identify with the oppressor
0: yeah with
1: the master with the desire to achieve power and control and one of the the, the genius of freud and the tragedy is that in his writing and you can see clearly in his relationships with other people he both had tremendous empathy for victims of trauma and the marginalized, and at the same time, desire to be a master.
0: <laughs>
1: he wanted to be a guru. He wanted to be the patriarch. right? And we see this clearly in the way that he both you know, demanded a kind of idolatry from his disciples and marginalized those who would break with his teachings, like mm. Berenzi and Adler and so forth. So Freud captures in his theory and in his life the very dynamics of how people who can be persecuted, oppressed, ex- exploited, marginalized, um, can come to desire um, power and flip. And this is what happens in his writings where he flips very quickly from an identification with the victim to an identification with the perpetrator.
0: Right. And and I love that when you said that, we met on a webinar that you were hosting about the book and creative arts and, and the very thing you're discussing right now with me. Um, just um, a week or two ago, um, and I'm so glad we're doing this today, but um, there you said the victim becomes the oppressor, and um, you know I, I have heard it said that um, in another way, uh, one of my teachers, um, Terry Reel, he does family therapy and relational life therapy, um, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm trained in couples work with him. He calls the person in that position often the the, the person who is offending from the victim position. And so you become identified Mm. with the perpetrator, with the offender, Um, but you were marginalized. So it's a both and, right? It's like, yes, I have my wounding, right? So that is true. But now, like you say, I flipped, I've switched, and now I'm part of the push down. Of others, yeah. not the yeah, and, and how do, what why, how do people do that, and, and how do we see that played out, um, dare I say, in our current uh, landscape of um, politics and and people um, here in turtle island or the u s of a
1: yeah, I, I think this has both um, like it would be easy to just kind of psychologize the dynamic and say, "Oh, we all have this tendency it 's totally individual, et cetera." Um, and I think there are certain um, psychological dynamics that do play out, but it's important to also contextualize this historically yeah. that this dynamic it didn't just fall from the sky. Uh, part of what I do in the book is to um, you know even though it's about psychoanalysis, I, I really had to contextualize it in the history of colonialism yeah. and the fact that across uh, the Caribbean, Latin America, North America, you had this dynamic. Um, very early on, when, for example, the Spaniards were um, colonizing and enslaving the, the Taino, the Arawak indigenous people of the Caribbean. And uh, there was this whole debate, like, you know, do they have souls? Are they people? Are they humans? And Bartolome de las Casas, famously, of course, um, had this debate arguing that, no, the Tainos are people, they're human beings, they shouldn't be enslaved. Um, And the powers that be basically responded, that's great, but I got to make this money. Somebody has to work this land and extract Mm. the gold. And Bartolomeo Las Casas responded, well, the Tainos are human, so they shouldn't be exploited, but Black people are not. Mm. They don't have a soul. And so right there, you have this, this weird split and switch between you know, the way that he kind of idealized the Taino people and then denigrated people from Africa and mm. argued that they're the ones who could be exploited. Um, and of course, the Spanish crown did both. It continued uh, exploiting the indigenous people and then bringing in folks from Africa as slaves. Um, the the Spaniard colonizers would quip like, oh my God, you know, the, the African slaves are teaching Tainos. Um, they're teaching them uh, uh, rebellion, and, and and you know, to rise up, which, you know, kind of a racist moniker as if the Nainos didn't want to rise up already. Mm-hmm. So you have this history of allegiances, right, right. between uh, folks brought in from Africa and folks from the indigenous peoples of these lands, right? But there's another dynamic that plays out. Um, you also have allegiances between white indentured servants and black slaves, particularly in the Americas where they see, again, their common struggle band together and rebel against the masters, right? Bacon's rebellion. But you had another dynamic that played out. The one people tend to be most familiar with is the creation of whiteness itself. The way in which folks who are white indentured servants were basically lifted up by the powerful and said, no, wait a minute, you are like us. You are white. And for being white, you're going to get 30 acres, which in America gave you the right to vote, a mule, because you need something, to carry your shit, and a gun. So right there, um, the right to vote, the right to own a gun, the right to land, all of that got wrapped up in whiteness. And you could then break apart these allegiances in the interest of the powerful. So a group of people who had been marginalized and oppressed and cast out, white endangered servants, could now become like their masters but there are other dynamics very similar to that. To to stay the example of the United States, um, you had this, you you know, you have one generation of black slaves who, you know, formed allegiances with Native Americans, but then much later on, you had a generation of black pioneers who would come into the frontier and who would, uh, you know, kick out Native Americans out of their land and take that land and work it and use the wealth extracted from that land to essentially haggle for their autonomy and freedom with white settlements, which only lasted so far as the white settlements decided to allow them that autonomy, but ultimately take the land itself and its wealth. And similarly, you had in the Eastern coast, you had Native American tribes who, you know, historically had their own traditions in terms of slavery and whatnot, which was very different from American slavery. Mm. But they too uh, developed uh, a pattern of using um, Black slaves to work their lands, generate wealth, and similarly use that wealth to haggle for autonomy for their peoples and nations. Mm. Um, A very tragic circumstance can be noted that after the American Civil War, when uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was being carried out, um, the cement that some of the autonomy and wealth generation within native american settlements would be destroyed and so you had this very tragic confluence of factors where folks who had been historically marginalized and oppressed had economies that depended on the marginalization and oppression of another group of people mm. and for that to be you know disrupted essentially by white supremacy would mean the loss of first nation sovereignty and autonomy so all these systems work in complicated ways to weaponize light-skinned privilege, to weaponize wealth, and essentially get communities and between communities to essentially um, exploit and hurt one another, while those who are in control, you know, predominantly white landed master classes, still reap the benefits. Yeah. And you see similar dynamics historically across Latin America. Um, And again, it the tragedy of this. The tragedy of it again is how hurt people hurt people to Mm. forgive. The redundancy of that statement. And so the book is a review of how, from Freud onwards, you had a psychoanalytic account of how these tragic but very real dynamics play out, not just psychologically but social, politically.
0: Beautiful analysis and all the research that you did to be able to really recognize and pull together all the threads, um, piggybacking on the research, obviously, that others um, had also done and pulled together and the threads that, that they'd seen that, that you you wove uh, into an even more um, up-to-date current tapestry. Um, <clears throat> and, and I mean, I, I think that there's, there's so much in what you said. Um, <laughs> and as you were saying it, I was thinking, right, I know, I'm Haitian. Dominican and Italian American
1: <laughs> oh my god I mean Thanks. right we're, like historically right we, we carry you know especially you know many people but especially folks from the Caribbean right like I'm from Puerto Rico but I'm light skinned mm-hmm. like that's not an accident right. right something happened in the genealogy to create me um yeah yeah, I'm sorry. Go on. It's no, so I mean it's just thing. as you're
0: saying this, and I'm like, you know, I mean, for those who don't know, to your point, I mean, you know, I mean, I grew up with stories of the Tonton and you know the 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 whole you know sort of weaponization, like you know people beheading Haitians um, from the Duvalier regime, Haitian black right, you know yeah. um, leaders. And then the Trujillos on the uh, island of Hispaniola side of things, who um, even as recently as you know within the last five years have taken "quote unquote" Haitians of dark skin. Right? People born in Haiti, I mean, born in the Dominican Republic, but perhaps of Haitian origin, and said, No, you're not actually a citizen anymore of the Dominican Republic. Go back. Go back to the other side of the island, you know, this imaginary border, because it is about skin color there. And there are all these kinds of tests like, Well, how do you pronounce this word? I think it's, what is it? Perfil or something. It's like cilantro or something. I don't even remember. But whatever the word is, depending on how you pronounce it, indicates whether or not you're Haitian or Dominican. And, you know, all this business of passing comes into play. And then like, there's all these issues of colorism, like you say, like I happen to, you know, depending on a day of how tan I am and how I do my hair and what I'm wearing can either present as um, lighter white skin passing or uh, as a woman of culture or as someone who is claimed as Iranian or uh, Jewish or Iran you know, like mm-hmm. Brazilian or whatever it is, you know, everybody kind of um, can kind of claim me in a way and in some ways that's beautiful right you know child of the universe child of the world on the other hand it's also like um it's complex and and that's just me and i'm just talking about what you're saying in terms of the wars and you know and haiti was the first ones like you say the uprising the liberation and we go into new orleans and we you know louisiana and all the Creole from there has come from, you know, the Caribbean. And so how these things and these systems of oppression structurally are perpetuated and how really what I hear you saying to just get off my own little soapbox about my personal social identity as it pertains to this structural argument that we're talking about is that um, what I hear you saying primarily is, and I've learned this myself in doing this sort of, what are the roots of inequity? What are the roots of racism? To me, what I've learned is racism or racial divides are in service to economics economics that pertain to everything for the elite or the rich and not for the masses, regardless of color. And that certain gifts that were given to people who were able to integrate into lighter white skin passing identities, which have gone on to include from indentured servitude, Irish, Jewish, Italian, right? Um, that were not always that way, that that those 30 acres and a mule and a gun, um, you know, then did allow some upward mobility with this, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, rugged individualism, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. philosophy of Western culture, but not for everyone. And we see that when we see a lot of poor, white, People all around the world, but in America, for example, what's known as America now—the United States of America—who um, don't have good um, jobs or healthcare or you know uh, opportunities and and are frustrated by that and upset about that because of the economic poverty that they're in, um, and yet I don't know fully make the connection around it being more about economics perhaps than about race, that racism and race is in service to them also not having access to wealth.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's, um, it's a very complicated thing to talk about. Because sometimes, um, especially in social justice circles, the anxiety becomes. So are you saying that white people and men, and are you saying they're the real victims? And, and it gets into this very Complicated discussion where either, you know, we kind of get stuck within the language of oppression itself, mm-hmm. winners and losers, oppressor and oppressed. And it sometimes blinds us to seeing the bigger game that's being played that winds up screwing some more than others, but ultimately also dialectically screwing everybody. Um, this is something that, you know, it, it was very shocking to me. You know, I've, I've read Freud, especially The Future of an Illusion for you know, over a decade. And each time before I really, really dug into it, it's like, oh, this is Freud's religions book. And Group Psychology and the Analysis of the Ego is Freud's group book. Um, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. In The Future of Illusion, Freud says, how is it that those who are exploited and who make society possible by their labor um, not turning society upside down oh, it would seem like society is the product of the wealthy few over the many who are deprived and displaced. But, Freud says, um, I may be a Roman plebe exploited by the wealthy, but at least when I am in the army conquering other nations, I can be a Roman citizen. Hmm. Something that, funny enough, Marx used the exact same metaphor. To explain mm. the dynamics of uh, white working class people and their domination of black people and black slaves, that even though there's this dynamic of exploitation, you can take this Frankensteinish creation and you can make it whole through the creation of an other, especially Freud argues a racial other. Yeah the thing about this dynamic is that we often think of it as you know we, we then get to this place of what's primary is it race or is it class the way that not not only the early psychoanalysts but their descendants um particularly in the harlem renaissance with richard ryde and ralph ellison um, and Franz panone of course um, the, the best way to talk about it is the way that a contemporary thinker and researcher Uh, Professor of Law at UC Berkeley, Ian Henry Lopez, talks about it. Where he talks about the fusion of race and class, that we can't really treat these as separate phenomena that just bump into each other now and then, but they're part and parcel of the same system and the same mechanisms of control. And so, in turn, you need to have an analysis that sees how race and class, but also gender and sexuality, are it's not they don't just intersect intersection also presumes that these are separate things that touch on some point as opposed to being part of a mass yeah the 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 best way that i would explain this that i think captures the dynamic itself is through something that's both an analogy and an example of the book's thesis when we think about for example gender Uh, A traditional narrative is men are for Mars, women are for Venus. We're in this incommensurate battle, right, between men and women. Um, And then you have uh, a certain feminist perspective that says, well, wait a minute. You know, women are paid lower wages for their work. Work that's traditionally associated with women and femininity is devalued. Women are forced to, uh, you know, uh, cram themselves into this box of femininity, etc., All these forms of oppression that women face, which leads to higher levels of anxiety and depression symptoms, symptoms, higher levels of PTSD, all of this stuff, right? And then you get this other side that rushes in almost like the Kool-Aid man bursting through a wall saying, (laughs) oh, but not all men. And men suffer too. And men, you know, have higher, uh, higher symptoms, higher rates of substance abuse and suicidality and all this bad stuff. And then that gets into this battle for recognition, almost like, who's really suffering? Is right. it men? Is it women? Is it chicken? Is it lasagna? <laughs> and you, know, I think mo- most of us who are on the left would naturally say, "Well, you know women are the uh, uh, represent the oppressed group within this dichotomy." What we sometimes lose sight on is that both the suffering that women experience. And the suffering that men experience with all their privileges are a function of the same system. Right. What we might call patriarchy reproduces itself by turning men into something called, let's say, men, right? Masculinity. Right. Um, And all the research points in this direction. The more that men force themselves to accord with these toxic views of what it means to be a man, Mm -hmm. the more likely they are to commit suicide. Um, the more likely they are to have huge substance use problems, higher rates of depression. But, and here I bring in Du Bois, Du Bois has this idea of the wages of whiteness, that even though white working class people may face exploitation, blah, 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 whiteness confers them a certain wage that helps soothe and solve those wounds. Going back to gender, the same thing that for men is often quite destructive and painful you know, boys don't cry, you know, be a man, etc. That thing that hurts them is the same thing that they aspire to. And so they engage in greater labor. So try to become the most man masculine thing right. ever, which is then displaced onto women. Oh, well, why, why is it that I'm not able to fulfill these obligations of what it means to be a man? Why do I feel emasculated? Why do I feel lesser than, Oh, it's the feminists. It's
0: your fault. It's yeah. women.
1: It's, mm-hmm. right? it's somebody else's fault. And completely obfuscated from view is actually the reason you're suffering, man, cis uh, men in particular, is not because of women. It's because of patriarchy itself. Right. So then patriarchy creates a system where it rewards men for their sacrifices and labor with these privileges, even though it scoops out uh, life expectancy. From men. Yeah. And, and, and you have to craft a, a message and a way of thinking that calls men towards justice. That says, not only is it a matter of you giving up your privileges to create a world that's just for women, it's also about giving up the very machinery that is killing you. Right. These are your options to have functional, uh, healthy relationships with yourself and other people including LGBT people, cis women, et cetera, or, or uh, uh, failed liver, cardiac problems, a bullet in the head, These are your
0: choices. Absolutely. And and a couple of things come to mind as you say that. So beautifully said. Thank you. Back to the structural issues, because really that's what it is. I mean, that's what I mean when I say, you know, mindfulness and the Buddhist teachings are about structural inequities, structural issues, structural ways of seeing that then impact us. And then what are we carrying? And then the invitation is to interrogate that and mindfully and curiously and with a friendly attitude explore what that's about. So then we can start um, perhaps recognizing um, what we're inheriting. And then how we can begin to shift how we relate to things differently, which is the whole idea of responding versus reacting, which is about um, nervous system regulation, you know, sort of unpacking your trauma response and uh, fight, flight, or freeze, or, you know, shutdown or whatever it is, and then being able to um, free yourself with um, a more uh, sort of spacious uh, mobility um, filled with agency, um, which doesn't negate individuation, but um, also recognize the shared connection and the um, old swimming in the soup of these structural uh, frameworks that can be quite um, inhibiting uh, for most living beings, <laughs> including the planet, um, because they're linear and because they're dominant, dominating um, and, and extraction based and not and not generative and sustainably based and, and collectivist and, and connective um, based. But what I what I was thinking is <clears throat> as you were saying that. Again, referencing my mentor uh, Terry Real, who does the family therapy and couples therapy um, that I'm certified in, is the idea of what he calls enlightened self-interest, meaning that for a man, for example, in a marriage, it is in your best interest to find a way to communicate what your actual needs are, or to yield in a way of like doing a jujitsu move, like water, you know, flows, you know, down a little bit. Like it's not always mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. resisting, right? Um, because you know, we're sort of stuck if you're looking at the stages of development and stuff like that in like the no stage, (laughs) you know, I mean, Freud, you have the different stages, but I'm just sort of making it more uh, available, you know, in terms of language um, of the protest, you know what I mean? Like that I, that I have my no, I have my, you know, I will not do that. Um, And that Carol Gilligan, Dr. Carol Gilligan, as you know, um, from NYU uh, talks about men sacrifice relationships for relationship Relationship to where they are placed in the hierarchy and where they can aspire to be in the hierarchy, in the framework of masculinity, where uh, it is, in fact, you know, can I crush it this quarter in my sales numbers? Can I, you know, get the next, you know, 20% increase in, you know, um, profits for the company and therefore get my bonus and then bring myself closer to, you know, the, and that it's all, and the languaging obviously is things like that. I killed it. I crushed it. I da, 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 and we know mm-hmm. that that pops up a lot in porn, um, which is uh, also a, sort of an extension uh, of this. Also, this this violence not only against women, um, but um, all kinds of of populations, and that it does harm. What I hear you saying to the people who are doing it because of the things like suicidality or, um, you know, heart disease and loneliness, existential angst, you know, all the things that, um, you know, that the feminine is, has been de- demonized uh, in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in most Eastern traditions, as I understand it, <clears throat> Uh, or have experienced parts of it anyway, that there's, you know, this invitation into equanimity or balance around there being a both and, and that it's the wisdom of knowing what is skillful and what is not skillful, when to be the warrior with the sword and the shield, when to be able to yield and to have discernment around, you know, kind of this fluidity of um, action or non-action. And that the way that this is structured now, it's like, if you're not acting and if you don't have your sword in hand, you know, you're a wuss,
1: basically. (laughs) Right. Right. And that's exactly right. And it gets played out all sorts of different ways, right? Where then, you know, we were talking about men and we can also talk about whiteness and white people, like across all these different dimensions. There's both, um, there's wounding and then there are the privileges that are afforded to try to cover up that wound, right? Um, and so, being able to enter that place of recapturing vulnerability, and the fact that actually your vulnerability, in the same way that you can't screw me without screwing yourself, your vulnerability is intimately wrapped up with mine. Yeah, this is what um, this is, you know, uh, what Freud literally describes as social justice. He has this example that I talk about in the book that underneath the desire for social justice is an aggressive, hateful tie to an other who has harmed us. And so then we in turn, and he gives the example of somebody who is syphilitic, who the person who is syphilitic, he describes, you know, is very concerned about making sure not to pass on this disease, but that underneath that is the thought, why should I suffer? and not others, why should uh, should I be excluded from so much and others should not, right? So social justice then is a transformation of an internal wound and a disidentification with the one who has hurt us in favor of a loving affectionate tie with an other, Hmm. what he calls an other outside of our group, which could be the outcast, it could be identification with the victim, that we disown, not not disown, but that we renounce our desire for power, for control, for vengeance, even out of a desire to connect with and protect this other. Essentially, saying I will not let what happened to me happen to somebody else. Hmm. Um, other people, you know, would think of this as uh, identifying with the symptom that you can in a sense, humanize the other. And by humanizing the other, restore your own humanity, which is what um, ultimately happens in different discourses around oppression and anti-oppression liberation, is that we can sometimes get caught up in a more um, traditional model of justice as opposed to restorative justice that Mm. restores a sense of wholeness, not just to the individual, but to the community
0: not one that
1: ignores harm harm has to be recognized and accepted harm has to be repaired through a reparative act but the reparative act has to allow for um not like hollywood style redemption you know like somebody (laughs) comes in a fucking unicorn to save the day (laughs) but that you know but that there can be this recognition that you know there is harm that you have done and you did this harm because you too have been harmed in turn.
0: It's accountability. So you must then,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: And I think nobody wants to be accountable because the the, the shame and the outcastness and the othering and the loneness one feels, right? It's like further, further... Um, ostracization even if it's an internal process where you're going to feel as though you're going to be further ostracized or, or that you don't have a capacity we call it just just tolerance or the window of tolerance or you know that, that it's yeah. very low um, and and that again this idea of rupture and repair we're not taught how to do it we're not taught harmony disharmony repair we're not taught the repair process people don't know what that looks like structurally or personally And there are models structurally out there, a lot of the indigenous justice um, in Native American communities here um, that I know of. um, Certainly one of my friends, Sujata Baliga, has a um, restorative justice project, Impact Justice, where uh, some of the models around that are integrated. Um, And some of our own. (laughs) legal founding um, principles in theory more so than in practice in terms of the united states of america are founded on some of those principles theoretically um but in in practice uh you know in vivo uh i have not lived up to what you're talking about which is the restorative the restoration of balance and accountability
1: it's funny you bring up rupture and repair and also distress reduction i You know, I have to be honest, you know, as somebody who was trained in rupture resolution models and, you know, used them in psychotherapy and, you know, I've also had DBT training, like I've had all these tools for a long time. But it was almost like the therapist part of my brain was disconnected from the social justice part of my brain. Mm. So when it came to having a confrontation with someone, for example, uh, around something somebody may have said that's microaggressive or problematic, whatever, I would often lead with the call out and a demand for restitution and repair from the other. Hmm. And what happens? Very human response. People become defensive. They become walled off. They reject and disown their behavior, right? Right. I had an interaction where the same thing happened. Somebody said something that was very, um, very problematic and very destructive in a professional setting. Hmm. And initially, I was like, look, you know, we're in a professional setting. You said this word, it has these racial, cultural implications, whatever. Automatically the person became very defended. They were not hearing me. So then um, in a moment almost partly desperation, partly creativity almost, I was like, you know, we, we sure use a lot of dbt around these parts. What what if we practice what we preach? And use some DBT together right now. Mm-hmm. And part of what we did was we took turns using Dear Man, which for you know folks who are not familiar with DBT is a specific Marshall hands work. Marshall hands work. It's a specific set of skills focused on how you communicate to somebody. Um, that you, I'm, I'm super boiling it down, but it's essentially a set of skills for communicating, not just that you're hearing the other person, but you're also asserting what it is you need from the other. Mm-hmm. And when we took turns, I went first and I reflected back what the other person was saying. What you and heard them I did say. That, exactly what I heard them say. And when I did that, they felt heard and their mind opened up. Um, the mentalization folks would talk about how, you know, when folks are in a state of trigger or fight or flight, their mind closes off. Yeah, the they threat response, the your prefrontal cortex
0: and executive functioning goes offline
1: goes offline. But when people feel held and heard, safe, their mind feels safe, right? They're able to literally open up their mind and are able to take in another perspective. And heart. So and and heart, I like that. They're able to take in somebody's heart. So when I did that, it was almost like a 360. This person was able to open up, hear what I was saying, and actually only then reflect on their behavior and take ownership.
0: Absolutely.
1: So that's when it kind of clicked for me. Like, oh, sometimes in our spaces, we spend a lot of energy calling out instead of calling in. Yeah. And because this work is so painful, because it challenges people's sense of their own goodness, you almost have to, you have to lead with your own empathy. Some might call it mentalization or leading with mindfulness mm-hmm. so that the person has space to be able to reflect on what you're saying and actually make a change. Yeah. To actually see, as you described from your mentor, that actually it's in their best interest <laughs> right. to make this change. Like it's not right. just for me. <laughs> right. It's not just for people of color. It's not just for women. It's not just for LGBT people. It's not just for the poor. You have skin in this game. Right. In some and some quite literally. <laughs> quite literally.
0: You got melanin. You got <laughs>
1: <laughs> In the scheme, man. Right. So, so that's become a, a huge North star.: I there. love that. That's
0: there. embodied practice right? That's practicing what you preach, you know, that is, that is embodied practice, that's embodiment. And it's also your own capacity to rupture and repair and or, um, you know, within yourself for, you know, and, and, and in internal family systems language, Dick Schwartz's work, it would be more like, you know, working with the different parts of yourself that recognize that, hey, the first time I did it, I was acting out of this part or this part was acting. But then you brought it back to what you would call self-energy in that model and bring it into the idea of, okay, well, I can be the spaciousness my mentor uh, Jack Cornfield talks about, be the loving awareness. That is really what you are and who you are and what you're about. And from that place of awareness, then you have a certain distance from whatever it is that's the trigger so that you can have the prefrontal cortex come online and do the communicating in a non-reactive and rather responsive and essentially connective way. Because as you were saying earlier, you know, there were um, peoples who were together, whether they were, you know, Taino and black, whether they were indentured servant white and um, indigenous or whatever it is, meaning that we want our our basic nature is we're mammals. We're connected by this umbilical cord. You said I started with my mother, you know, with psychoanalytic stuff because I'm here at my mother's house in Massachusetts, right? And she wanted to come down and have a cup of coffee with me this morning. And I was like, ah, I'm running late. I got to do stuff, you know, whatever. But I did. So she is very much alive in my world, particularly at the moment, but in my soma, necessarily. I came connected with this umbilical cord to her. As we all do come into the world, like it or lump it, connected to a woman, <laughs> in this case. Um, or, uh, you know, whether
1: or not we have... Um, you sure you're not psychoanalytic? You're talking a lot of other <laughs> stuff and fundamental... I mean, it's so... Um... It's so true. Like, I think we, we do have a drive for relatedness. And that drive gets thwarted by all sorts of forces, familial as well as political. I, I just want to quickly caution some of what uh, I said earlier. Because it, what it, I want to make sure that something's not misinterpreted. And that is that even though I totally agree with you, these are ways that we can think through social justice work. It's also the case that it's not something that I would say People have to do, especially if they don't have the bandwidth or it doesn't feel right for them. Especially when they have different intersecting marginalized identities.
0: Absolutely. Um, to
1: do because it can come off as like, well, aren't you just coddling the oppressor? And I want to be very clear: this is a form of you could think of it as um, mindful skillfulness, which you have to feel willing and wanting to do. And it's not like a blanket prescription, like this this is what you should do all the time. Not at all. Uh, that that really has to depend on whether you have the energy and willingness of doing that work with a focus on the outcome and the outcome being to create a restorative space, both for yourself and whatever other you might be struggling with,
0: Absolutely. both in general, whether
1: let's say it's a couple, an intimate relationship, or somebody that's in a more privileged position than you.
0: And whether or not you can have a structural impact on the community that you're involved in at a micro, macro or social, you know, greater level. And and to that extent, you know, in somatic experiencing language, we call it about demand and capacity. If you don't have the com- capacity in your nervous system to meet the demand, like if this is too much, then then it's not, you know, it's likely that the outcome isn't going to quite be you know, like it shouldn't be forced, right? And and we already have enough of that, like boundary violations growing up and we have different kinds of traumas, whether they're, you know, complex developmental traumas or other, social structural traumas. Like who wants more boundary violations and people telling me what to do? No, it's an invitation to regulate, Mm -hmm. to practice regulation. That's why some mindfulness practices and some compassion practices are critical because they can help grow the parts of our brain and the parts of our body and the parts of our heart. Chitta is like heart mind. That's why I threw that in there. It means like mindfulness wasn't just mindfulness. It's like heart mindfulness. You see, so, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? It's not just that. And so to be able to have that integrated, um, again, we're not just cut off from what's above our shoulders, you know, and down below. Um, it is integrated. And that also that this idea of having, um, you know, not only demand and capacity, but but having the... The the, the the view of compassion as sometimes in mindfulness communities is wise compassion, idiot compassion, discerning or non-discerning meaning yes. like you can cut through with wise compassion which could be a fierce no and a big boundary mm-hmm. and not yep. some you know happy happy joy joy um obviously reconciliative process but it could still also be in service to what your deeper intention is which may be insight which may be we need to like clear it up so that maybe I do need to kind of pull away for a little while from the situation to have it laid bare so that it can be seen cleanly and then we can maybe re-enter at a later point where there's more capacity, for example, to see where the where the dust has settled and things like that. And now what needs to be done. Does that make sense? So it can be fierce. 100. Um, it, it can be a no as much as it can be this engagement. But in your DBT example with your colleague, it was that. And I think it's a both and as it often is the paradox of that.
1: Um, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because that, that dialectic, um, I have this passage near the end of the book that I just want to share with you right quick. Um, I am Latinx. I am Puerto Rican. The white man is my other and I have feared him. I am his other and he fears me. Some would argue it's not my responsibility to educate him. Freire would argue it's my primary task to free both myself and him. Mm. Fanon would remind me not to let him off the hook and demand humanity from him. Freud would interpret my hatred and my love, asking me to hold both while letting love rise above. Um, Mm. It it is this dynamic of having a heart that is both open but boundaried. Yeah. That it isn't just a surrender. Of our basic needs for protection and self-assertion and assurance, et cetera, to try to maintain connection with another, but setting a loving boundary that says, you know, I am I am open to loving you within this space. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And outside of this space, you know, I will have compassion for you, but I am not going to love you. I am not going to be open to you in, in that sense. Yeah. Which is a super challenging thing especially for budding clinicians to really learn that it's not just Carl Rogers and we're just unending waterfalls of empathy, but that sometimes the most empathic thing to do in our work is to say, no, I'm not going to do that. That wouldn't be not just in my interest, it wouldn't be in your interest.
0: Right, right. To service, down, yeah. service to self, compassion for self. Um, Jack Cornfield uh, talks a lot about you know the circle is, of compassion isn't complete unless it includes you. <laughs> and, and and to be discerning about it, but that uh, to include it, we have um, just a couple of minutes left and 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 I know you're a poet and I'm a poet, and I'm not going to have time to read the poem I was referencing earlier about the pandemic um, because I think it's a little bit longer than um, we probably have time for today. But um, can you talk just a minute about the creative process and, and sort of like how that can also be a way, I want to say a way out, but a way through or a, a support? or a way to think more expansively or differently or engage other brain processes and ways of being so that we might come up with solutions to some of these things that we otherwise
1: might not. You mean in terms of like creativity in general? With yeah. All... Like,
0: or, or your own personal practice with writing or yeah. of any of these things that are creative, like how does creativity influence our ability to break out of structural chain, so to speak, um, either from a personal perspective yeah. or, or where you think otherwise it, it applies.
1: So I think in that regard, art, you know, in my other life, I'm a poet and performer here in New York City. And I think that there are ways of using art that are very similar to different therapeutic processes, right? There are ways of doing art that can help one cope and just be in this moment without facing outward into the world. There's a way of engaging in art that re-engages a traumatic process. one of the more influential pieces on art and poetry that I've read is uh, uh, García Lorca's The Theory and Play of Duende. And the way that he talks about Duende as this force that's like a uh, fire burning in the blood, uh, a spirit that suddenly emerges out of the artist that just upends habitual ways of being and calls for transformation. But that kind of transformation is always containing within itself almost like a mini trauma. So sometimes we need that to shake us up, to render us awake. Mm. But sometimes that feels like too much. And right now, I just need to use art as a way of practicing self-care. This came up at a panel a couple months ago where the panel was like, okay, how do we do poetry in an age of Trump and social justice and all these (laughs) things? And one of the panelists was just like, Bro, I'm not even thinking about all that. I- I'm doing poetry for me," he said. "I'm doing poetry to deal with my childhood trauma or to rethink my relationship with my parents. Um, I can't think about all that stuff right now because all that stuff is just so big. And all that I have control over is this pen, this paper, and these words. Mm. And I think there's a wisdom to that. We we sometimes do need art in the creative process as a way of deepening our own self-exploration, as a way of looking at different parts of ourselves. And also, of course, you can use poetry as a way of really challenging yourself to look at the world in a different way that in turn uh, frames and challenges that world. That world. Um, very much in the way that Paulo Freire talked that to read the word is to read the world.
0: Mm. and to
1: understand the world is to invite the world into action and transformation mm. so you almost have to hold those different um, capacities of art that art can be this super disruptive force that can shake us up and make us go wait a minute why is it this way why can't it be different and sometimes artists oh it's a pretty thing right. they had some nice words I like the poet's words right right
0: right Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, I love that. It's, it's, again, another both and there to be able to really kind of uh, let us see that, um, that it's possibility. And that if we can be curious about it and if we can kind of lean into, um, you know, just not doing same old, same old, the default mode, you know, the, 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 the programs that we were that were preloaded on the laptop of us <laughs> that we can, you know, sort of uh, change out the software and art and poetry, for example, can certainly help do that. Dr. Daniel Gazambide, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology at the New School for Social Research, the Director of Culture and Mental Health Lab, uh, a scholar and the author of... Uh, a People's History of Psychoanalysis from Freud to Liberation Psychology, which came out uh, last year through Lexington Books. And I really just want to say, I could talk to you all day long about all these issues, and perhaps we'll have to have you back to, to dive into a little bit more. But this was so rich for me. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we close for the day um, about our conversation or anything else you'd like to leave viewers and listeners with?
1: I, you know, first of all, again, thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy to talk with you the past hour. Um, I, I also, I really enjoy being able to talk to folks across theoretical perspectives because you can see all the, um, you know, like uh, in, in a Solomonian sense, like there's so much under the sun that is interconnected, that is vibrant, and that um, as analysis, analysis would say, certain ideas just return time and again because of their vibrancy and their power. And so I thank you for sharing your wisdom with me um, from your perspective of somatic experiencing. It's given me a lot of really helpful ideas to really think through.
0: Well, may we all be more integrated in many ways. Thank you so much, uh, Danielle. It's a pleasure. Take good care.
1: Thank you.